Please keep your Bibles open to that passage because we'll be looking at it in a few moments. What is a minister of the gospel? Though there are several ways that we might answer that question, for our purposes, let us consider some of Paul's statements. Don't turn there, but listen to what he said. In Ephesians 3.7, we read these words. I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. In 2 Corinthians 3, 5 and 6, he says this, Our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In both of these cases, Paul uses the word diakonos, the common word for servant, the word from which our uh, term deacon comes, but it refers to one who has been sent by Christ for the benefit of others. The apostles never considered themselves in any other way. They were servants, and they were servants in a role that was granted to them by Jesus Christ the Lord. Now, this truth is not to be limited to the apostles, for the scriptures teach us that their successors, pastors and teachers, are called in the same way. The best and most obvious text to demonstrate this is Ephesians 4, 7 through 11, where the apostle contemplates the glory of the risen Christ who has ascended to heaven and from his throne personally gives to the church gifted men. You may remember that there are five that he mentions, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These witnesses answer our question directly. Ministers, pastors, elders, teachers are servants, and they are particular gifts of Christ to his church. And this is the place to begin. Now, no training can make a man into a minister of Jesus Christ if he has not been given by the Lord as a gift to the church. John Gill said this, Paul did not thrust himself into the ministry, but God put him into it. Nor did he become a minister of the word by his own attainments, not by all the learning he acquired at the feet of Gamaliel or elsewhere, but he was made a minister, as he himself says, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto him. Listen to another comment of Dr. Gill, this on 1 Timothy 4.14. He says this, and these are very important words for us to keep in mind as we proceed this evening. He says, What qualifies men for the work of the ministry is a gift from God. It is not of nature, nor is it mere natural abilities and capacity, nor is it anything acquired, it is not human learning or the knowledge of languages, arts, and sciences, nor is it special saving grace for a man to have all these and yet not be apt to teach or fit for the ministry. But it is a peculiar and distinct gift. It is a gift of interpreting the scriptures and of dispensing the mysteries of grace to the edification of others, which, when it meets in a man with all the rest before mentioned, makes him very considerable, 
And this gift is in a man. It is a treasure put into earthen vessels, a good treasure in the heart, out of which a good minister of Christ brings forth many good things, things new and old, both for the delight and profit of men. And this gift is by no means to be neglected. This talent should not be hid in the earth or wrapped up in a napkin. It should not lie dormant and useless, but should be stirred up, cultivated, and improved, as it may be by reading, meditation, and prayer. These are very wise words. The ministry is first and foremost a gift from the Lord to his church. And this must be emphasized and always remembered. It must govern all of our thoughts. We cannot make men ministers. Only Jesus Christ can do that. But we also must notice that this is not the end of Paul's words to Timothy on this subject. We need to notice the entire passage that our brother just read to us. In this passage, Paul teaches us that those who have been given as gifts to the church must actively cultivate their graces and their gifts. They're not passive subjects made into ministers by strikes of holy lightning, nor by a mystical experience. Rather, each one must seek to identify and expand grace and gift in his life. In this text, Paul focuses upon both giftedness and grace and urges upon Timothy a kind of holy discontentedness, not because he has received these things, but rather in the status of the things that he has received. You see, Paul wants Timothy to understand that he, Timothy, ought to be actively pursuing the increase of gift and grace as his ministry progresses. And it should be done in such a way that others are able to make note of that growth. They can see in him progress from year to year as he grows in giftedness and in grace. Now, I want to go very rapidly through the text. I want to make eight observations on what Paul says here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. The first thing that we notice is that Paul says that Timothy is young. Now, this is somewhat undefined, but it probably refers to someone in their 30s. In the culture of the ancient Mediterranean world, youthfulness was generally considered to last until about age 40. So if you're not 40 yet, you're still young. From 40 to 50, you were an adult. When you hit 50, you're old. So I became elderly many years ago. But that, in the culture, that's how they viewed this. And that's why the commentators think that Timothy was probably in his 30s when Paul wrote these things. Second observation. Timothy, despite his youth, must be an, an example to the flock. There must be an advanced state of maturity in speech, conduct, love, spirit, faith, and purity. Now, in light of what he's already said, and because of his age it might be assumed that his character was not yet fully developed. But Paul tells him that he must ensure that all these graces reflect a maturity beyond his years. And this, brothers and sisters, is the increase of grace. And Timothy must look after it. 
As a leader in Christ's church, these things must be present in his life. The third comment I want to make is this. In the same context, Paul speaks about the need to increase his, his gift. The three activities of verse 13 all have to do with public ministry. The reading of Scripture, some of the more modern translations say the public reading of Scripture, which is exactly what Paul intends. He's not Timothy, telling Timothy to go into his room and read a scroll, but rather that when he comes to stand before God's people, there ought to be an increase in his ability to read the Scriptures to them. Of course, most of them would never have owned any copy of Scripture in their own lives. The only time that they would encounter it is when they came to worship. And so it was very important for Timothy as a young man to enunciate, to speak clearly, to put the proper emphasis on the words that he read from the Scriptures. I would suggest that that still is a beneficial thing to do. Then Paul mentions exhortation, the application of Scripture, giving to God's people exhortations, giving them directions as to how they are to live in this world, and then finally teaching, to give them instruction. And Paul tells Timothy that he must give attention to these things, because they don't just happen, they, come, they grow as a result of concerted effort. When he gives himself to improving his reading, to improving his exhortation, to improving his teaching, so that others are able to see it, he becomes a greater blessing to the people of God as the years go by. The fourth observation to make, in verse 14, there is a gift that can be neglected. Now, what is this gift of which Paul speaks in this place? Well, I don't have time to give you the proof for this, and I'm not going to ask you simply to believe it because I tell you, but I'll give you my understanding of what this is. The gift is the privilege of serving in office that he occupies. In fact, if you compare this to 2 Timothy 1.6, where Paul speaks about the gift that has come through his ordination, it seems that that's what it's about. You see, Paul is telling Timothy, or reminding Timothy, that he must stir this up. He must recognize who he is as a servant of Christ and of Christ's people and work hard to see increase. He must focus his efforts on the increase of grace and giftedness as he functions in his office. The fifth comment to make. In verse 15, Paul urges two things upon Timothy careful reflection that it, on, on his growth in the ministry, and single-minded devotion to this. Paul tells him, this is your task, to seek with the blessing of God to grow as a minister of the gospel. Not to be content with where you are, but to seek to advance and to move forward. Sixth comment. The result of this is at the end of verse 15. It is that progress is to be seen by all. Now, there's something I want to remind you of at this point. As Paul writes to Timothy here, this is the same man of whom he had said in an earlier writing, Philippians 2, 19 through 22, he writes to the Philippians and he's speaking of Timothy. He says, I have no one like him. He has proven character. This is Paul's best young man. And yet he doesn't say that to Timothy. 
He doesn't say, Timothy, you've reached that status. You've done well. He says, Timothy, keep going. Press on. Grow in your gifts and grow in your grace. Even with this testimony writing to the Philippians, Paul says, there is further work to be done. Timothy, don't rest content. Verse 16, this is my seventh comment, summarizes it all. Watch your life closely. See that grace is maintained and increased. And watch your teaching closely. See that it increases in usefulness to the brothers and to the sisters. And the eighth comment is simply to note how Paul ends this passage in verse 16. It provides the reason. The success of the minister's task is measured in eternal life for himself and for his hearers. Now, I read through this. I I acknowledge that we went through that very rapidly. But if we take seriously what Paul says, we have to acknowledge that we cannot take the work of the ministry lightly. Those of us who serve as ministers need to hear these words and apply them to ourselves. We must view the increase and maintenance of grace and gifts as a very important part of the ministerial task. Ministers cannot and must not rest content in their attainments, but always seek to pursue pursue these things, these two summarized things, grace and gifts, with a great deal of vigor. We confess with all our hearts that only Christ makes a man a minister. That's where we begin. Only he does that. And yet following Paul, we likewise confess that the men Christ makes as ministers must labor to improve their skills for the ministry. We have a combination of the divine and the human. Now, if this is true of men in the ministry, as was the case with Timothy, Paul's finest young man, would anyone doubt that it is also true of those who aspire to the ministry? And that is that ministerial training is an ongoing necessity. It takes seriously what Paul says in this place and seeks to apply it. And that leads me to my next question. What then is ministerial training? That's the great question before us. We all acknowledge the truth and importance of what we've just said. Christ gives men, and the men that Christ gives must themselves give diligence to increase grace in their lives, as well as increase their gifts. Ministerial training is the attempt to assist men who give evidence that Christ has presented them to the church to prepare for that service. It recognizes the fundamental agreement between the two principles that we have seen. There's no contradiction between them. In reality, this is simply an application of that great principle of sanctification. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. We pray that the Lord will raise up laborers. We hear those words of the Lord Jesus, who says, pray that laborers might be thrust out into the harvest field. We pray for that, and then we labor to cultivate them, to help them to increase in grace and giftedness as they move forward. I would suggest to you that the sole purpose of the theological seminary ought to be 
the careful preparation of men who will be able to feed God's people, to establish them in the faith, a term that's used in the New Testament to describe the whole body of doctrine that's contained in the Word of God. It must be a place where men are equipped with all the tools necessary to spend a lifetime ministering to people in a variety of circumstances. These men must have a firm grasp on the languages of Scripture so that they will be able to bring forth new treasure week by week. They must have a thorough understanding of the content of the Scriptures, able to see the development of themes leading to the great events surrounding the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the theme of all Scripture. The faith must be grasped in all of its fullness, in its beautiful symmetry and breathtaking majesty. These men must see that theology is the basis of faithful Christian living. And they must be able to communicate clearly and plainly all these great things. That's the task of the seminary. Now we ought to ask the question, are there any models in Scripture that give us paradigms that we might follow in doing ministerial training? And there are at least three that come to mind as we work our way through. The first one I'll call personal entrustment model. Now the other two have C's, so I was trying to come up with a C and maybe you could say a communication model, but maybe that's the preacher pressing the point a little bit too much in his alliteration. The personal entrustment model. And the, the great example of this is Paul and Timothy. It's the method of 2 Timothy 1 and 2. Our brother, Dr. Barcelos, told us earlier today that sometimes chapter divisions get in the way of the flow of thought, and he demonstrated that to us in Ephesians 1 and 2. I would say the same thing is true in 2 Timothy 1 and 2, because everything that Paul says in the first chapter influences the words that he, uh, he writes at the beginning of the second chapter. One man who has attained to a certain level of expertise imparts the fullness of his knowledge and experience to another. It involves instruction in the truth, in life, and in godliness. And the context of 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 is full of these things. Paul received his gospel from heaven, and he gives it to Timothy, the deposit that he passes on. And then Timothy is to take it and pass it on to faithful men, who themselves are to pass on other faithful men. And the, the, the line doesn't stop there, because Paul has simply given us an example of that which ought to continue generation by generation by generation. This model of personal entrustment or personal communication is very important, and it should be noted. And I believe that we ought to acknowledge the propriety and legitimacy of this model and consider its use as a part of our strategy for ministerial training. In the 18th century, when the English universities, Oxford and Cambridge, were closed to dissenters, to those who did not uh, conform to the Church of England, many ministers used this method with good results. It's one of the goals of our internship program that ministers, pastors, will take under their wings young men and shepherd them along as they're working with us in the seminary. The second model that we might notice 
is the master and disciples model, and I call this one, I think this is a better term, the communal model. This is the model of Jesus with his twelve and the other followers who are alongside of them, or John the Baptist and his followers. We have two examples in the Gospels. This is a legitimate method for the preparation and training of men. In these two cases, Jesus and his disciples, John the Baptist and his followers, an itinerant master was accompanied by a small, personally selected band of disciples who were taught the lessons of truth and life by their leader. They spent an abundance of time together. On occasion, the disciples were sent off on their own, charged by the Master with certain responsibilities. In Matthew chapter 10, we see Jesus sending his disciples out to do his work. They were ready for the departure of the Lord, for finally they were charged with promulgating the Master's work after his ascension into heaven. And this method may be similar to and have some overlap with the first, but whatever the case, it is clearly a legitimate method and may serve as a useful part in our ministerial training strategy. And we do have some supporting churches with students in our midst who have multiple uh, students in our student body. I would urge them to consider using this method in their internship development in their own congregation. But the third model is where I want to spend the rest of my time, and this is the school of the prophets. I call this the community model. The third scriptural method, and one that is forgotten or neglected, is that of the schools of the prophets, which appear explicitly in the sacred record during the ministries of Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, and perhaps in the New Testament era. And I hope to show that to you as we move forward. Unlike the other methods, this is a formal school of instruction aimed at the preparation of teaching, of preparing men for teaching ministries. And so I want to investigate this method more closely, though you've heard me say that I appreciate the other two models and believe that they are valid and can be of great benefit in our day. But I believe that this model provides us with an excellent and useful model for our own purposes today. Now, I won't take the time to have you look with me at all of the relevant texts. If you want to take notes, I'll give them to you. 1 Samuel 19, verses 18 through 20, chapter 25, verse 1, 1 Kings, chapter 20, verse 35, 2 Kings chapter 2, that we've already read, verses 1 through 8, and also verse 15. 2 Kings 4, 1, 38 and 39. 5, 22, chapter 6, and chapter 9. Now, we ought to ask the question, what were these groups? There are two major possibilities that are presented. The phrase is literally... B'nai Ha-Nevi'im, which means sons of the prophets. And some commentators assert that these should be understood as guilds or as formal associations of prophets. But others, and this is the majority view from the Reformation through at least the 19th century, believe that they were educational institutions 
as well as guilds. And I've been convinced by, their, by that interpretation, and I'll give you some reasons why. First off, from a very popular commentary on 1 Samuel by two Germans called Kyle and Dalich, they say this, 1 Samuel 19. The origin and history of these schools are involved in obscurity. If we bear in mind that according to 1 Samuel 3.1, before the call of Samuel as prophet, the prophetic word was very rare in Israel, and prophecy was not widely spread. There can be no doubt that these unions of prophets arose in the time of Samuel and were called into existence by him. They were called into existence by chosen instruments of the Lord, such as Samuel, Elijah, and Elisha, whom the Lord had called to be his prophets, and endowed them with a peculiar measure of his spirit for this particular calling, that they might check the decline of religious life in the nation and bring back the rebellious to the law and to the testimony. You see, these authors, as they work their way through the various texts which I've already mentioned to you, make points like this. These were educational institutions in nature intended to take young men and prepare them for the work of preaching the Word of God to God's people. But they were not merely educational. They exposed these prophets to the responsibilities of leaders in Israel, and they served as an important bulwark in times of severe apostasy. I would say we need things like this now because we live in a day and age in which there is great unbelief in the world. Another commentator writing on 1 Kings 2 says this, The schools of the prophets are mentioned. It is probable that they were revived by Elijah for the purpose of raising up men who would labor for the quickening of the nation's spiritual life. Not less than three of these institutions are found within a tolerably limited area and at the very headquarters of idolatry, namely at Bethel, at Jericho, and at Gilgal, the latter being afterwards, for lack of room, transferred to the Jordan Valley. From this passage in um, 2 Kings chapter 6, as well as from chapter 2, verse 7 and following, in which 50 sons of the prophets are mentioned, and in 443, a numerous attendance at these institutions may be inferred. About 100 sons of the prophets sat before Elisha at Gilgal, and their number at Jericho could hardly have been less. The name sons of the prophets points to an educational relation of the kind of instruction given in the schools of prophets. We are told nothing, the discipline would tend above all things to inculcate unreserved obedience to the divine word when it proved itself to be such, and unconditional surrender to the divine call. These are very helpful observations. During a period of spiritual declension, when idolatry was being promoted in Israel, this is the northern kingdom, it seems that Elijah established these schools so that men might be prepared to serve the believers in the nation. Now, there's something important to remember at this point. The prophets of the Old Testament were not primarily future tellers. They were not primarily men who received divine revelation about things that were to come, but rather they were those who expounded the law and the writings and called Israel to repentance and faith. 
When you read the books of the prophets, that's what you see more often than words that speak about the plans of God for the future. Those who served in this way needed training for their task. Listen to Matthew Henry in the way that he expresses himself in his comments on 2 Kings 2, 1-8, through the text that was read to us from the Old Testament. He says this, Elijah, before his departure, visited the schools of the prophets and took leave of them. That is, he said goodbye to them before he departed. It seems that there were such schools in many of the cities of Israel, probably even in Samaria itself. Here we find sons of the prophets and considerable numbers of them, even at Bethel, where one of the calves was set up, and at Jericho, which was lately built in defiance of a divine curse. At Jerusalem and in the kingdom of Judah, they had priests and Levites and the temple service, the lack of which in the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, God graciously made up by those colleges where men were trained up and employed in the exercises of religion and devotion. Thus religion was kept up in a time of general apostasy. These seminaries of religion and virtue, which Elijah, it is probable, had been instrumental to found, he now visits before his departure to instruct, encourage, and bless them. Now I find all of the, the comments from these three witnesses very helpful. In times of apostasy, and in places where apostasy reigned, these schools were raised up for the training of men. They, they recognized just what we recognize. God makes prophets, but they need instruction in the law. Now, a very interesting line of thought has been suggested to me by a passage in what at first was an unexpected place. You know, when the Westminster Assembly met in the 1640s, they published a series of documents and we are familiar with their confession of faith and the larger catechism and the shorter catechism, but there were other minor documents that, that, that they published, and one of them is called the Form of Church Government. Listen to what the Westminster Divines say in their Form of Church Government. The heading is Teacher or Doctor. Doctor is just an old word for teacher. The Scripture doth hold out the name and title of teacher as well as of the pastor who is also a minister of the word as well as the pastor, and hath power of administration of the sacraments. The Lord, having given different gifts and diverse exercises according to these gifts in the ministry of the word, though these different gifts may meet in and accordingly be exercised by one and the same minister, yet where be several ministers in the same congregation, they may be designed to several employments according to the different gifts in which each of them doth most excel." And he that doth more excel in an exposition of Scripture, in teaching sound doctrine, and in convincing gainsayers than he doth in application, and is in accordingly employed therein, may be called a teacher or doctor. Nevertheless, where is but one minister in a particular congregation, he is to perform, as far as he is able, the whole work of the ministry. And then they go on and say this. A teacher or doctor is of most excellent use in schools and universities, as of old in the schools of the prophets, and at Jerusalem, where Gamaliel and others taught his doctors. Now that caught my attention, that last sentence, where Gamaliel and others taught his doctors. The mention of Gamaliel took me by surprise, 
But the more that I looked into and considered the scriptures, the more that I think that the Westminster divines were correct in using him as an example of what is approved for the church of Jesus Christ. Now, consider the following lines of evidence with me. Let's think first about Gamaliel. This Jewish teacher appears to us at two places in the New Testament. In Acts 5.34, where he's presented to us by Luke as a wise man giving instruction to the Sanhedrin. And in Acts 22, verse 3, where Paul is in the midst of a riot in Jerusalem and expresses the fact that he was trained by Gamaliel in Jerusalem as an attempt to calm the people down who are seeking to attack him. Now, there are several things that we ought to notice. Luke calls him in the book of Acts a teacher of the law. And this word appears three times in the New Testament, in Luke 5.17, in 1 Timothy 1.17, and where Luke uses it in the book of Acts. But Luke also tells us that Gamaliel was respected by all the people. But perhaps most importantly, in Acts 22.3, in this riot that takes place in Jerusalem, where people are seeking to put Paul to death, Paul acknowledges that he was his teacher. That is, our apostle had been a student in the school of Gamaliel. This was Paul's seminary. And he presents this fact to his hearers in order to persuade them that the charges against him were false. Paul is glad to count himself as a graduate of the school of Gamaliel. Listen to Matthew Henry's comments here. Paul had a learned and liberal education. He was not only a Jew and a gentleman, but a scholar. He was brought up in Jerusalem, the principal seat of Jewish learning, and at the feet of Gamaliel, whom they all knew to be an eminent doctor of the Jewish law, of which Paul was designed to be himself a teacher. And therefore he could not be ignorant of their law, nor be thought to slight it because he did not know it. His parents had brought him very young to this city, designing him for a Pharisee. And some think his being brought up at the feet of Gamaliel intimates not only that he was one of his pupils, but that he was above any other, diligent and observant of him, and obsequious to him in all he said, as Mary that sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. That's high praise for Gamaliel. But think also about Paul. We've already quoted Gill's comments. Paul did not thrust himself into the ministry, but God put him into it, nor did he become a minister of the word by his own attainments, not by all the learning he acquired at the feet of Gamaliel or elsewhere, but he was made a minister, as he himself says, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto him. Dr. Gill was exactly right. Paul's ministry was divinely given. Nonetheless, we must not make Paul's words into a contradiction of what he said in Jerusalem in Acts 22. While it is true that only Christ made him a minister, in fact, he was grateful for the education he had received at the foot of his master. He never condemned this instruction. Listen to Gill's comments on 2 Corinthians 11.18. I will glory also, that's Paul's language, for he was of the seed of Abraham as well as they, of the stock of Israel and tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day and brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. 
But these are not all of the things he could and would and did glory of. He gloried of these and of others beside them, which the false apostles could not, and thereby proved himself to be superior to them, even in external things of which they bragged so much. I think that Gill had it right. Paul had all the advantages of Jewish training, and in the right context could even glory in the training that he had received. Now I want, you to, I want to ask you a question. How would you answer this? Don't speak out loud. Think about it in your head. Who was the greatest expositor of the Old Testament Scriptures? Who was the greatest expositor of the Old Testament Scriptures? I would suggest there are two answers to that. The first that ought to come to mind is our Lord Jesus. Without question, our Savior was an expert in his understanding and exposition of the Old Testament. He stood head and shoulders above all the rest. He was well taught. He increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now, I won't go beyond that and infer any kind of formal training for the Lord Jesus, but I would say he was the best. But just behind him, we ought to answer the Apostle Paul. Based on the record that we have in Scripture, this seems clear. And I don't mean to denigrate any of the other apostles. We just have more of Paul's writings than anyone else. That's why I say this. Paul thoroughly knew the Old Testament. But how did he know it? How did he know the Old Testament so well? How is it that we can read his epistles and see both direct quotations and allusions to the Old Testament? It was not by a sudden revelation that came from above, but rather from careful instruction that he had received at the feet of the greatest teacher of the law in his day. You see, when the Lord converted him, his training in this sense was already complete. The knowledge that he had received from Gamaliel became clear. Suddenly, the fog that was over the Old Testament was blown away, and he saw Jesus Christ as the theme of all of Scripture. But he had all of that information in his head, and the Lord revealed to him the Savior. Now, there are some, some of the older writers, who suggest that Gamaliel's school was a continuation of the schools of the prophets of the Old Testament, or, or maybe a revival of those schools of the prophets after the, the sad events that had taken place in Israel. Now that might be pressing the evidence beyond what it legitimately holds. Nevertheless, I think that the old writers were correct in seeing at least some resemblance and a basis for the role of teachers in the educational work of the church. Now, I put all of this together and what, to what conclusion am I drawn? Well, it seems to me that the closest thing today that compares with the schools of the prophets, you know what I'm going to say, is the theological seminary. I affirm the other methods. But this is certainly how the schools of the prophets have been viewed by the church for the last two or three centuries. Remember, one of the first things that Charles Spurgeon did when he saw amazing growth at the Metropolitan Tabernacle was to begin what was called the Pastor's College. It was spelled P-A-S-T-O-R apostrophe S. That means it belonged to Spurgeon. The name was changed a little bit later on to S apostrophe, meaning focusing on the students. But when Spurgeon, in the first decade of the Pastor's College, 
spoke about his school, he often spoke about it as a school of the prophets. Interestingly enough, the Log College, which was the forerunner of Old Princeton Seminary, likewise was called by its proponents a school of the prophets. Now this is what we need to say. On the one hand, we believe that only God can make a minister. But on the other hand, we know that ministers must be trained. Knowledge must be increased. Gifts must be honed and strengthened and grow. And I'm convinced that this is the basis for what we are doing. We are following in the steps, as best as we are able to do so, of this noble scriptural institution. So I ask, is the role of the seminary important? Well, given our own cultural distance from the pages of the Bible, I would suggest that it is indispensable. Given the needs present in a fallen world, it is crucial. And this is why we pursue the course that we've chosen and that God has blessed for 25 years. Our greatest desire is to see men prepared for the arduous task of being servants of Christ and ministers to God's people. They must be men of proven character, men who reject the deeds of the flesh and who bear the fruit of the Spirit. They must be men with a growing ability to understand and communicate the Word of God to people of all ages, men and women, boys and girls. So, I conclude with these words. May God keep us faithful to this task. And may the next quarter century of IRBS provide a sound education to godly and gifted men. Amen.